The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. This podcast is made with the support of New Zealand On Air. A warning. Listeners should be aware that this episode contains a discussion of sexual harm that could be triggering, as well as mention of suicide. Please take care. Episode 4, Christchurch. That's Jane and me, having an emotional reunion after taking about 25 minutes to find each other in the arrivals hall at Christchurch Airport. One of the things we've discovered in the making of this podcast is that neither of us has a particularly good sense of direction. We're in Christchurch to talk to a psychologist. We've spent the last month or so talking to the people who were there when Jane's relationship started with a man we're calling Dan. Dan was Jane's church youth group leader, more than 10 years older than her. Their relationship started in secret and became sexual when she was 14. It went on until she was nearly 18. I have to say, I'm relieved we're talking to a professional. I've been feeling out of my depth. The interviews with Jane's mom and sister and her best friend at the time have been very intense. Jane is still insisting she wants to meet with Dan, but I can see how these interviews are stirring up old hurts for her. And I'm starting to get really worried about what might happen if that meeting doesn't go well. Given the damage he's done, it's been easy to think about Dan as a one-dimensional tabloid headline, youth leader preyed on flocks sort of thing. But that isn't what I'm hearing, even from Jane. And I know I'm going to have to talk to Dan soon. I'm hoping the psychologist here in Christchurch will tell us something that will help us decide if this is even the right thing to do. I'm Noelle McCarthy, and this is Dear Jane. I'm Catherine Gallagher, I'm a clinical psychologist and I am currently the clinical practice manager at an organisation called START. So START's an NGO that supports children, youth and adults who um, have experienced sexual harm, sexual violence. I'm sitting in the front room of a house in suburban Christchurch. It's a very small space, carefully decorated, with bright art on the walls and delicate little ceramics on the window ledge. There are two comfortable chairs facing each other 
and a box of tissues discreetly at arm's reach. It's a cosy space on this early evening. It's very cold outside and it's raining. I'm here because I want to know more about how something that might seem good can cause so much damage over time. Most young people are hurt, or actually most people who've got an experience of sexual harm, are hurt by someone that they are in relationship with. Catherine reports that a high proportion of abusive sexual experiences happen with people we know. So that fact that there are confused relationships, the fact that um, here's this person who can be a source of love and kindness and fun and gives me a sense of specialness, um, is also someone who is doing some harm, is really confusing. Can it be love in one person's head and still be abuse? I think that's such a good question um, and observation because I think absolutely. You know, I, I don't know the case, I don't know the details and hopefully, you know, um, that's, uh, you know, I'm not wanting to step outside my, my lane there. Just to be clear, Catherine said before we met that she can't talk about the specifics of Jane's story. So I've given her a broad hypothetical of a young teenager and her youth group leader who is 10 years older. I think that's where, um, you know, people can get themselves into pretty sticky situations because, you know, in my frame now, as a 25-year-old man, um, we could argue about his emotional maturity, his way of being in the world, um, what he found challenging about being with someone his own age um, that might have made being with a 15-year-old much more attractive because maybe she was more compliant and, and kind of looked up to him as though he was the sun and moon and stars. So there, so there may well be things that were very seductive and, and, and um, attractive and when I say seductive, not that this, this was Jane's attempts to seduce, absolutely not, but just that actually I'm seeing some things about my capacity to control and seeing that adoration, seeing that trust that she looks at me with, experiencing the trust that the other family members hold in me can feel very attractive. Catherine says it can be very intoxicating for the young person caught up in that sort of dynamic as well. Especially if that person is saying to you things like, we are in love. And, and actually, I might be in love with this person. You know, that person might be saying, you're special. You know, you're the only person for me. You know, all of these things, which again, if we have grown up on a, on a diet of, of romance and, and, you know, once in a lifetime love. Dear Jane, I can't wait until camp. One year anniversary for you and Dan. You're so lucky you've found your perfect man. I'm still waiting. No luck so far. I think I'll wait and see who God chooses for me. I'd better go now. Love you heaps. Especially as a young teen or adolescent, you know, this is what our movies are about, hey? This is what our, our songs are about. This is what we sort of dream and fantasize. Actually, that doesn't stop at adolescence, right? You know, it happens yes. throughout life that that's what we fantasise about. That's where the grown-up, you know, needed to and, and was morally responsible for and legally and ethically responsible for saying, I might have some feelings towards this young person that is not okay. I need to go and get some help about that. I need to go and put some boundaries in place. I need to remove myself from the situation because I was not in a position to be able to enter into that relationship. And that's on me. Okay, so this is clear. And this is where it's actually useful that we can only speak in generalisations. Even if Dan did feel like he really loved Jane, that's not what really matters. Dan was the adult in the situation. And acting on those feelings the way he did, it hurt her. 
having a sexual relationship with Jane hurt her. And that hurt is still playing out. I looked at my nieces and thought if anyone went near them, I'd fucking kill them, you know? I was a child. I was a child. Jane's not here right now, in this room with me and Catherine, because she's sick. We planned this trip to come down and talk more widely to a professional about how sexual harm affects young people, confronted by the kind of situation Jane found herself in. At the airport earlier when we met, she was her usual upbeat self. But as soon as we got to the hotel, she doubled over with stomach cramps. She said it might be a virus, something she got from her kids. And it might have been. People get 24-hour bugs, I know. But the timing was suggestive all the same. One of the things I found out today is that Jane hasn't been going to the therapy sessions we agreed on. I'm a bit freaked out by this. Like, I don't think therapy is a silver bullet, but I know I'm not qualified to be her sole support. There's one other thing Catherine says that really strikes me about the impact of this experience, what it might be like for someone who's been through what Jane has. I think that, you know, we are shaped by our early experiences of relationships. We're shaped by early experiences of being sexualised. You know, and if those two things are combined, then, then of course that's go- there's going to be an impact there. Um, and it sounds like, you know, again, it wasn't just the sexual stuff. It was how he behaved, because he might have behaved in that way to get access to the sex, um, but it was those things combined, hey, in, in terms of how he, she learned that this is what relationships look like. Hearing this from Catherine, I think back to something Jane said the very first time we talked. You know, I believe because of what happened to me as a teenager that I have always been in search of this person who's obsessed with me and that's not normal, that's not right. Like, So I have then had these relationships where I'm not getting that same level of attention and affection and ultimately I sabotage them. Well, that's what I believe. <laughs> and then once they're gone, it's like my world's fallen apart. Intellectually, Jane can see she wasn't responsible for what happened when she was 14 years old. She said as much, but emotionally, she might still be carrying a lot of the weight for this. There's a whole lot of dynamics there that happen in these situations where the victim, you know, has this experience of feeling blamed, that that actually stopping it was their responsibility. Now, if this started when she was 14, the responsibility was only ever with him. He started it. It becomes very difficult for someone who gets ingrained in this kind of relationship and feels, you know, and, and is told what they need to hear and is is probably also told that if people do find out about it, there might be judgment and, and, and negative consequences and, and negative consequences certainly for them, um, but negative consequences maybe for the person who's done the harm. And so would you want to do that for me? And it'll mean that our relationship ends and you don't want that, do you? So there can be a real con job that goes on um, and and I say con job, you know, it could absolutely be what this person believed and felt. Um, but the reality is, as a young adolescent who's been shaped by this person, to see them as the one who's in charge, to see them who's the one who makes the decisions, 
to see that actually if they're asking me to keep this secret, they must be doing that for a very good reason. That we're special, that we're above and beyond the, the rules of normal society. Jane's situation was slightly different to what Catherine is sketching out here. Jane never had to be told by Dan to keep things secret. She told me that she knew instinctively, right from the time he first kissed her, that it had to be secret. He was her youth group leader, after all. And it was only in the beginning that nobody knew. Eventually, many people found out. There's one thing I've been waiting all evening to ask Catherine about. This idea we've had about setting up a meeting between Jane and Dan. Restoration and, and kind of restorative processes can be really healthy. You know, if and I suppose the ingredients of a, of a healthy um, and safe restorative process is that everybody has kind of done their work, if that makes sense. And so, you know, that the, the person who's been harmed has, has an awareness of, of, of the impacts of that harm and has been supported through that and has a voice. But that also the person who's done the harm has had time and, and, and support or just opportunities to reflect and is able to acknowledge and take responsibility for the harm that they caused. Now, again, those are some, they, they, might, they might sound like a pretty simple process, but often those ingredients aren't in place. And that's where those restorative processes or those points of contact, um, you know, do have the capacity to be disappointing or um, further traumatising. More trauma. That's not what we're after. Catherine is saying everyone has to do the work. It sounds like Jane and I are going to need to have a conversation. And I guess we also have to engage with what this means for Dan. Back at the hotel, Jane's still sick. That night, I can't sleep. I get out of bed and start talking to myself. I'm just a bit worried about how it could go wrong. The producer in me is just thinking of all the different ways it could go pear-shaped. I'm concerned that sitting down with him, you know, if she does it, it's not necessarily going to provide validation of her feelings or I don't know what it'll provide because I don't know what he'll say. And also, I just want her to be, I want her to be supported and I feel... Well, she's sick, you know, she's sick next door and she was sick earlier and I feel, I feel quite powerless. <laughs> like, I can't, I feel like I can't help her. And after talking to Catherine tonight, I wonder if what we're doing will be helpful. The next morning, Jane's feeling well enough to travel. I need to fill her in on what happened with Catherine. I'm still thinking about that final warning Catherine gave me about how any meeting with Dan could possibly inflict more trauma. I want Jane to be safe, but I don't know how I can do that. The only thing I can think of is to get her to go to therapy. To be honest, I can't understand why she hasn't done it already. The audio in this next bit is a bit ropey. Sorry, it's taped on my phone in the back of an Uber on the way to the airport. It starts with me filling Jane in on the conversation she missed the night before with Catherine. The thing she said was that um, 
you know, it wasn't your line to hold. Like it wasn't on you to sort of hold it, hold out against Dan. It was on him once he realised he was attracted to you to to find a way to make that you know, to to get out of your orbit mm. and to keep you safe. And that didn't happen. Mm. I think, um, you know, I still, it is very black and white in terms of things like the law and almost any sane person's perspective. But I still don't feel like he had bad intentions. Does that sound wacky? I don't, I don't, you know, it's just there's, it's complex, right? One of the questions I asked her was like, is it possible to love someone and still hurt them and still, you know, be an abuser? And she said, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, we've all hurt people we love. This is an extreme version of that, but um, I, I, I think I've said it before, but I would be extremely surprised <coughs> to learn that this was a pattern of behaviour. Yeah. You know, it brought up something for me as well, which, you know, we've just talked about it and it's hard to say. It's like, I don't know if I, I kind of want to pack you off to therapy just like so that everything can be better. You know? like, I was just like, oh, I just I just want you to sit down with someone who can kind of hold everything. Mm. I feel like it's getting a bit big. It does. And, I, you know, it does... When you start to pull away at the threads of these things, other things start to unravel. And I do need to get into therapy, and it's not... I've been in therapy for years and years, on and off, mm. for various other things that, you know, probably do all stem back to childhood, <laughs> teenage years, all of those things, but I've never properly unpacked this with a therapist because most of the times I've been in therapy have been at crisis points, so it's been about dealing with the here and the now and the getting yeah. me back on track and getting me, you know out of bed in the mornings and not so much the the long tail of something like this so um, so while I have had lots of therapy in my life and there have been therapists who have known that this is something that happened to me I, I would have I know I downplayed it for a start and I'm sure that any therapist would have seen me downplaying it and thinking okay she's not ready to open up about this yet <laughs> um, but also I yeah I just haven't dived into it so now's definitely the time um probably should have done it a long long time ago you know the biggest thing for me Noelle has been just realizing that I it wasn't my fault yes like that's the biggest I can't underline that enough um because that you know for all this time that dusty old suitcase sitting at the top of the attic I felt was like my burden and now I realise it's kind of in a weird way someone else put it there yes <laughs> and if I can sort through it and then chuck it in the skip bin <laughs> um, then I can just I can just move on mm. and I don't 100% at this point know what it will be that enables me to throw it in the skip bin yes I don't know if it is an apology or if it is because we've been talking about that it. like yeah. we're nuts and bolts ways right we're at the place where I was going to call Dan next week to sort of invite him into the process. And how I feel after this trip, I feel like having a pause on that, that part, you know, keep doing what we're doing, the rest of it. But take a pause on that and see if we can get a bit more support. Yeah. 
wrap it around, you know, and um, and get a sense of what that might look like, like what what you need in order for the suitcase to get flung out the window. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where the suitcase is going. <laughs> and hey, um, you know, in lots of ways, you didn't miss anything last night because the first thing Catherine said was that it's not your fault and it couldn't have been your fault. And you know that. Yeah. You know, and I'm really glad to hear you say that. Yeah. There's another aspect to this whole story that we haven't even touched on, but Jane brings it up I now, mean, that all of this you. is about the future rather than just dealing with the past. It should be, yeah. And what I want to know as well is how to keep my kids safe. Mm. That's the other thing, is that, like, how do I make sure that I don't impress my experience on them to the point that I'm overprotective or freak out if they have crushes or, you know? Yes, like that yeah, myself. yeah. So. That's right. we got to get out. Yeah. we got to get out of the Uber. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much. We say our goodbyes at the airport. I don't know when we'll see each other again. After that conversation in the back of the Uber, we agreed to press pause on contacting Dan, at least until Jane's ready for everything that might entail. It's five weeks later. Jane and I have been talking most days. Jane's been seeing her therapist. It feels like she's settled into a rhythm. We've decided it's time to make the call to Dan. Hi, it's Noel McCarthy here. Do you have a moment to speak? I'm calling because I'm making a podcast series with Jane about the relationship that you had with her that started while you were the youth group leader at and we want to give you the opportunity to have your voice in the series so at this stage I'm calling to see in the first instance if you might be open to having a meeting with me Dan is polite but understandably guarded on the phone He stays on the line, though, which was, honestly, a bit surprising. We spoke briefly, long enough to tell him about the podcast and to explain why I'm asking him if he would like to be involved. This is a lot to throw at someone. So I ask if I can call him again in a few days' time, once he's processed it a bit more, maybe got some support. He says he's happy to do that. A week later, I try him again. Hi, is this It's Noelle here again, Noelle McCarthy. Oh, you're welcome. We had a long conversation. It'll be part of a series, yeah. It's still in production, so everything is sort of still being assembled. Dan didn't want his voice used, so you're only hearing my side of the conversation. Okay. I mean, it sounds to me from what you're saying that there might be things that you're thinking about or things that you you want to say 
Yeah, okay, and listen, this is really good for me to know. It's really, you know, this is, this is I, I, I just want to say I appreciate you being open about this and having an open conversation. Hmm. If you did talk to her, if you did sit down with Jane now after this time has passed, what would your intention be in sitting down with her? After I hung up with Dan, I immediately called Jane. Hi. Hi, You've spoken to him? You've spoken to him? I have. Much to my surprise. Me too. He's really willing to engage in this, I guess, is the first thing that is important for you to know. He's really willing to, you know, talk to me and you. And he wants to talk. Yeah, okay, I'm bearing the lead. He is very willing to have a conversation with you if that is something that you would like, if that is something that you are open to, but not on mic. Okay. He's thinking about his family. He's thinking about, you know, he's thinking about all the things that people think about, I think, in these um, yeah. scenarios. But in things, we've, can, in things yeah. we've thought about too, right? Like, yeah, yeah teaching, we've I guess, of it. like, you know, that as much as the impact on me is very real and so on, it's like, at what point are we creating... Um, unnecessary impact on people who, yeah. who who are complete innocent parties. You know, I had this weird feeling during some of the conversation where I was like, you know, I've heard your side of the mm. story and I know the damage that it did and I know mm. from talking to other members of the youth group and Ange and hearing his side of the story, I thought a bit about your sister, you know, about what Lisa said about the work in the youth group and how mm. much they enjoyed it and, and how much he enjoyed it. And mm. it was a weird, it was a weird feeling because I was able to sort of feel a bit of, not sympathy, but um, empathy, I guess. Yeah. Like there's part of me that was worried that when you spoke to him, he would deny, deny or play down or what have you. Um, because that's not the person that I knew, right? Like the person that I knew was someone who was, very committed and loyal and and the way that that played out and isolated me from other people and, and that kind of thing. So again, there's the impact, but the intention, I guess, for him was um, we both thought we were going to be together. It was like Romeo and Juliet, like we, we, we sh- shouldn't have been together. We knew that, but, you know, us against the world kind of stuff, I guess, which is... Not very realistic, because you know it's the stuff of fairy tales. It's the stuff of Shakespeare. Mm. But you know, because it's the stuff of fairy tales and Shakespeare, to actually kind of feel that in real life felt like it was very exhilarating. I guess. Oh, um, yeah. Look, there was there was no denial. There was no minimization. I would have been no... yeah. I would have been surprised if he had denied it flat out. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if he said, "I don't want to comment," or you know, something that yeah. shut things yeah. down. But I would have been surprised if he was like, that's a fabrication. That would have really, really shocked me and really, really hurt me. Jane, there was no... He didn't even challenge me. I feel so conflicted. Yeah, I, I feel really conflicted, I think, because I don't know. I don't know how to take it because um, even hearing it secondhand through you is a little bit like taking me back there, right, and forcing me because I... Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I cringe. I don't know why, but I have like a cringe response, um, which I'm sure. And I'm already thinking of like, oh, that would be hard for him to hear. Like, where is, like, why am I feeling sorry for him? But I have a, like a cringe response to the idea of us being in love and that kind of thing, even though I knew that that's what I felt. There's still part of me that's like, but I was too young to really know what good, safe love is. So I'm basing it very much on surface level, I don't know, hormonal responses or yes. like... you were 14. You were 14. He was an... He was an adult, you know, this is the the difference. And I didn't have the adult mind to kind of think about, yeah. But the other thing that I think, you know, I really, any time I feel myself kind of feeling bad for him because of what, because of what we're doing and how that will impact his life, I don't, you know, it's not my emo to go around and like screw up other people's lives. And I, and that's not what I hope to achieve with this at all. That's not the intention I'm pleased to hear that he wants to talk to me. It does make me nervous and my heart race a bit, but um, I'll think on it and just make sure that that's definitely what I want to do. But also, when I have these moments of feeling sorry for him or empathy or whatever you want to call it, is reading through some of those annual reports on the youth group and thinking about the way that he used to talk to the group and be very judgmental and be very black and white about things and then literally on the way home, dropping me home, would be fooling around with me in a way that was like, you know, purity was a big thing. I mean, I don't think we use the term purity, but that's, that's like the, the common use of the term now. Back then it was like fornication or, you know, premarital sex, but that was such a huge no-no. That was a topic a lot of the time um, at, at youth group. And then he would drop me home from those same youth group sessions and we'd fall around in the car in a way that was like... I struggle to reconcile that side of it that is quite clearly wrong. Sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I'm sad, sometimes I'm... I know. I don't want it to mess with your head, you know, and I do want, if you talk to him, I want that to be because... Not not because you... um you feel you owe him anything or anything like that, but just because you want to be heard. No, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like he owes me that, in a way. I feel like he owes me the opportunity to tell him, in my words, um, it's really weird to think that you're even talking to him, honestly. <laughs> um, and I, Yeah, and I need him to know that, that everything that I will say to him is my true feelings. So Jane's happy with how that first approach has gone. And it's reassuring for me that Dan seems to be in good faith. But there's still room for this to go wrong. He could get cold feet, he could back out, he could lawyer up. And we still have more questions. The main one is the same. How was this allowed to happen? In Dan's head, he fell in love. How come he was able to act on that? It was a youth group. Where were the other leaders in the church? Why didn't anyone step in? What responsibility do they now bear for what happened on their watch? One of the challenges that you you strike first up with any of the church processes is a lack of independence. Um, 
all of the processes are run by people who are associated with or work for that church. So they're effectively investigating themselves. On the final episode of Dear Jane, we're trying to get some answers while Jane prepares for a meeting that could help put a new perspective on her life and allow her to move on. He's in there. Yeah. Is there anything you want to go through or say? No, I, I just think I need to do this. You're ready. I'm ready. You're right. If this series brings up any issues for you, there is help available 24-7 on Helpline, free call or text 1737. And for more resources, you can visit the show notes for this episode of Dear Jane. Dear Jane is a spin-off podcast network production written and produced by me, Noelle McCarthy. Thank you to everyone who spoke to us for this series. Our producer is Madeline Walker. Our executive producer is Toby Manhire. Story consultants are Alex Casey and John Daniel. Our sound recordist is Te'ai Butler. Additional studio recording by Samuel Robinson. Our sound design and mix is by Mark Chesterman. Our original theme music is by Te'ai Butler. Our graphic designers are Tina Tiller and Archie Banal. Our voice actors are Liv Tennant and Tom Clark. And special thanks to Kirsty Johnston for guidance on trauma-informed reporting. This series was made possible by support from New Zealand On Air. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.